Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Good morning. I do that. I say that every Sunday. And uh, yeah, there we go. Well, good morning again. Uh, this past week, we started a, a this past Sunday, we started a, a series, a new series called "How to Be a, a Forgiving Church." Forgiving forgiveness, that is, is a critical subject in the life of the body of Christ. Truly. Truly, as you know, we've sung all about it this morning, uh, we must receive uh, forgiveness from the Lord to be saved and to enter the kingdom. A few weeks ago, we studied the Old Old Testament book of Jonah. We've been uh, just hitting some of these smaller books here the last uh, few weeks. And, And while those two books may seem completely opposite of one another, there is an important link. Now, both of them, both of them have to do with forgiveness. In the Jonah account, God forgave the wicked sinners of Nineveh and relented of the calamity that he had promised. This displeased Jonah because he didn't want God to forgive such an incredibly evil people. You see, Jonah didn't recognize or didn't fully recognize that he, along with every human who has ever lived, has a, or he had a, a, an evil and wicked heart. Jonah displayed an unforgiving heart toward the Ninevites because he didn't comprehend how much God had forgiven him. He had no idea. He didn't comprehend how wicked he truly was. Every person to ever live on this earth, including you and I, need God's forgiveness because he's holy. And we have sinned against him. And our sin has separated us from him. Therefore, we are need in need of a reconciliation with him. But God is a forgiving God who, who forgives those who ask. And Jonah knew that. Jonah knew that. And that was really Jonah's problem. He knew that uh, Exodus 34, 6 says that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, and that he keeps his loving kindness for thousands and he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Jonah knew that God would forgive. He knew that God would forgive the Ninevites if they repented. He recognized that God's mercy, yet he didn't want to give the same mercy to the Ninevites. And Jesus addressed this in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 12, as part of what we would call the disciples' prayer, he says, and forgive us our debts as as we also have forgiven our debtors. Shockingly, in, in the following verses, he ties our forgiveness with, the, with our forgiveness with the Father's forgiveness of us. In Matthew 66, 14, and 15, he says, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Then he says this, But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's a shocking statement. Now, this doesn't mean as Christians we can lose our salvation, but I would say that we cannot have, you and I cannot have assurance of salvation if we don't have a heart willing to forgive others. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says, you are nothing better than deceitful hypocrites if you harbor in your minds a single unforgiving thought. There are some sins which may be in the heart, and yet you may be saved, but you cannot be saved unless you are forgiving. If we, choose, if we do not choose to forgive, we choose to be damned, end quote. It's harsh. 
harsh, but I believe true nonetheless. If we harbor if we harbor unforgiveness in our heart, we certainly can't have assurance of salvation. And we live in a world, do we not, that, are, that is full of people demanding their, their pound of flesh. They demand their pound of flesh. If someone has done them wrong, they want it to be made right. We're so used to that. Even many who call themselves Christians harbor unforgiving hearts full of bitterness toward others. Many husbands who refuse to forgive their wives and wives who refuse to give, forgive their husbands. Most of the time, when this happens, the fallout of this lack of forgiveness is much, much, much worse than the original offense. In a fallen world, we will have, as you know, the unrepentant among us, but that does not excuse us as Christians from having a forgiving spirit. Church, sin and unforgiveness among families among the brethren, invariably, invariably leads to broken family relationships, divorces, wayward children, and broken fellowship among the saints. This produces families that can't, that can't flourish, they cannot flourish. Families that harbor unforgiveness toward one another cannot flourish, and churches, if they harbor unforgiveness toward one another, they fail. That's what happens. Ultimately, I would argue that these things, the failure of the family and the church, ultimately will ultimately destroy our nation and our culture. Where our families fail and our churches fail, the government was never meant to take up the slack. Never meant to take up the slack. Our schools, our public schools, were never meant to take up the slack where families fail. Let me give you another way to think of this. Sin and unforgiveness keeps us, keeps us from God's best for us. If we persist in sin and we refuse to forgive others, we will not flourish. And let me tell you this, and I think this is the point of the text this morning. Forgiveness takes faith. Forgiveness takes faith. To be a forgiving person, you have to have faith that there's a God in heaven who's going to make all things right. You have to have a hope that's placed on more than just this world. And today I hope to show you that this is Paul's opening statement to his, in his letter to Philemon. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll read our sermon text this morning, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. I do pray that we would be a forgiving church, that we would be a forgiving people. I do pray that our husbands would be forgiving of their wives, and their, our wives would be forgiving of husbands, and, and children, their parents, and parents, their children, and all these relationships between one another, that we would just be a forgiving people. Not that we don't deal with problems. Not that we don't deal with conflict. That, not that we ignore those things, but that we actually do deal with those things and ultimately forgive. Father, I pray that we would be that kind of church. In Christ's name, amen. Before I start this morning, before I read, I just want to remind you that after the sermon there will be communion, so as you, as we have this time of uh, preaching the word, I pray that you would be making your heart ready to, to participate in the Lord's table. Let me read the text, Philippians or Philippians, Philemon, verse 4 through verse 9. Paul writes, I thank my God always 
making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I pray, and I pray, that the fellowship of your faith may become, may become, become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because, of the, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, sake, I would rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, there's a story arising from the Revolutionary War about a man named Reverend Peter Miller. According to reports, he was widely known by many, including George Washington, who knew him personally. He was a talented and highly educated man, and apparently Thomas Jefferson had requested or requested him to translate the Declaration of Independence into seven different languages. And by doing so, he helped explain the American Revolution to the watching world. Miller became the pastor of a commun- in a community named Epaphra, where another man named Michael Whitman also resided. Whitman owned a couple of inns near the settlement, and one evening, two spies traveling incognito from British General Howe came to his hotel. They were gathering intelligence because the area had become the principal hospital for the wounded Continental soldiers. Whitman Whitman was known to speak his mind openly, so he began to speak unbecomingly of General Howe. When the men threatened to shoot him, he escaped and ran for his life. He hid for several days without food and became even more convinced that he would be executed if found by the British. So he devised a plan to go to General Howe and provide information regarding the Continental Army in exchange for his life. And on his way to Philadelphia, where Howe was stationed, he told his wife the plan and he left. When the men of the scouting party recognized Whitman, he feared for his life and offered to do anything for the British to save his skin. It is said that General Howe was so disgusted by this man's groveling that he dismissed him and to return to the Continental side to answer for what he had done. In the meantime, his wife had told the Continental Army about his traitorous plans. Upon return, he was put on trial for treason and sentenced to death. Now this is where Reverend Peter Miller steps in. He traveled on foot to meet George Washington at Valley Forge, and at that meeting he asked a great favor from Washington, and the exchange I think is informative. He says, he, he says or Washington said, I shall be glad to grant you almost anything, for we surely are indebted to you for many favors. Tell me what it is. Miller replied, that Whitman was to be hanged for his treachery and asked for his pardon. Washington, on his part, was taken aback, saying, That is impossible. Whitman is a bad man. He has done all in his power to betray us. In these times, we dare not be lenient with traitors, for that re- and for that reason, I am sorry that I cannot pardon your friend. Friend? Miller shot back. Friend? That man is no friend of mine. He is my bitterest enemy and has persecuted me for years. He has even beaten me and spit in my face, knowing full well that I would not strike back. Washington was confused, and he was puzzled at 
at this man's answer, at Miller's answer. So he responded, and you still wish me to pardon him? Miller answered, I do. I ask it as a personal favor. Then Washington questioned him. Why is it that you ask for a pardon for your worst enemy? To which Miller answered, I ask it because Jesus did as much for me. And with that response, Washington immediately pardoned Michael Whitman. Peter Miller had reminded Washington of his own words spoken in 1776. He says this, Treat them with humanity and let them have no reason to complain of our copying the brutal example of the British army in their treatment of our unfortunate brethren who have fallen into their hands. History tells us that Whitman was not hanged for his crimes. He didn't get, he wasn't hung, but he did lose everything he owned as the punishment for this treachery. In other words, his actions brought about consequences. Having said that, James Baldwin states in his book, An American Book of Golden Deeds, he says that Michael Whitman, with his head bowed upon his breast, went forth a free man and a changed man because of forgiveness. Now, this account has no doubt been embellished over time, but one can only hope that he was truly a changed man through the actions of Miller and Washington as they displayed forgiveness. But this story reminds me of an even greater story of treachery and forgiveness. Who is not reminded of Peter's denial of Christ during the trials leading up to the cross. Earlier, before that, Jesus had warned him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But in his pride, Peter replied, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing as well. Later, later though, Jesus forgave Peter and restored him, even restored him to ministry. You see that in John 21. I'm also reminded of the story of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears in Luke 7. Jesus forgave her of her sins and told Simon the Pharisee that her sins uh, had been forgiven. And he, he says in Luke 7, 47, this, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. Again, again we see this tie between forgiveness and of, of others and for our forgiveness of our own sins. Church, I hope, these things gives you some indication of our Lord's heart to forgive sinners. If we ask for the, with the right heart, God will forgive us of our sins. But part of having the right heart is the willingness to forgive those who have wronged us. In the words of C.S. Lewis, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. End quote. Now you may protest. How can I be sure that the person I forgive won't sin against me again? Well, the truth is we don't know other people's heart, do we, do we not? They may very well sin against you again. But Jesus says in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, he says that Peter came up to him and asked, Lord, how often shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 
Uh, Truly authentic, genuine followers of Christ are called to continue forgiving even when we are continually wronged. It is the spirit of forgiveness that Paul appeals to in his letter to Philemon. Paul's letter gives us incredible insight into the nature of Christian fellowship in the first century and the nature of true Christian forgiveness. Now, before we dive into our passage, I want to briefly remind you of Paul's opening. In this letter, Paul gives, uh, the series outline is that is Paul gives four instructions for how to be a forgiving church. First, we must be a church marked by Christian fellowship. We saw that last week. Therefore, we must uh, first relate to one another in humility. If you look at your Bibles in Philemon 1, Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. The the Apostle Paul wrote this as a a personal letter to a man named Philemon. Now, I want you to note really quickly three marks of humility in Paul's greeting. First, Paul humbly identified himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus and not as an apostle. In calling himself a prisoner of Jesus, uh, he highlights the fact that we are not our own. As Christians, we are bound to Christ, we are in Christ, and we are bound to Christ to Christ to do his will. Now we find in Acts 23, 11, that Jesus wanted Paul, that it was Jesus who wanted Paul to be imprisoned in Rome for his purposes. Uh, 23, 11, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for I, as I have solemn, as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must also witness at Rome. Now Paul we can be assured, may not have wanted to be in chains in Rome, but that's exactly where the Lord needed him, where the Lord wanted him. Now, in this letter, Paul identifies himself in this way, modeling to Philemon that we are all slaves to Christ. Second, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't follow his normal pattern of identifying himself as an apostle. I would argue that he didn't, didn't want to assert his authority as an apostle. He didn't desire to coerce Philemon using his authority. Again, this is a mark of Paul's humility toward Philemon and the entire Colossian church. Third, I want you to see how Paul humbly refers to others around him. He refers to Timothy as our brother. He calls Philemon our beloved brother and fellow worker. Uh, Down in verse 2, he mentions Aphia as our sister and Archippus as our fellow soldier. Paul's descriptions show his knowledge of each person, and also, I would argue, show his, shows his humble desire to show that they are equal in the kingdom. In this, in this he models his words in Romans 12, 3, for, by, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, you ought not to think more highly of, your, of, of oneself or himself than he ought. Let me say this again. For through the grace given to me, I say everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God is allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, we all have different gifting and roles, but we all are equal in the kingdom. That is Paul's point. Now look back at your text in Philemon 2. Paul says, To Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Now, this verse demonstrates that we must, as a church, realize the importance of fellowship. Most likely, Philemon, we said this last week, was a prominent, relatively wealthy, and influential member of the church at Colossae. 
the, a, a man named Epaphras had founded this church after he was saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Philemon was also saved around that same time under Paul's preaching of the gospel. At some point, these men apparently became acquainted and partnered to plant the church. Probably, and we can kind of work through this with what we know, Epaphras provided spiritual leadership while God used Philemon and his family to support the ministry. Now, I think, I, I have argued last week that Aphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus is his son. Now, we don't know every detail, but we do know in Colossians 1-7 that Paul reminded the church that Epaphras had taught them the gospel of truth. Uh, the gospel which has come to you, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. We also know from this verse that the church, the verse 2 in, in Philemon, that the church met in Philemon's home, so Archippus and Aphia would have been highly involved in the church ministry. Now, I think that we can surmise from this that Philemon's home was a beehive of activity for the church. Now, I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to say that his, that his home had become a central meeting place for the saints at Colossae. Now, I think that's something we need to, to think about as we think about what Paul is actually saying here. As we understand their situation, we should recognize the critical importance of fellowship. As followers of Christ, we have, all, have a duty, that is, to do all that we can to protect the fellowship of the saints. The situation with Onesimus, uh, Philemon's slave, could have destroyed the Colossian church and their fellowship. I don't think that's overstating it. Now, in the Wednesday small group, I mentioned that this church may have had many slaves in it. In Colossians 3.22, Paul directly addressed the slaves in the church. In Colossians 3.22 and 23, you can read that. And in Ephesians 6, 5, and 8, he also addressed the slaves at the church at Ephesus. And here's my point. If the church had many slaves, one can see that this situation would have been highly volatile. This is especially true considering that in God's providence, Paul was the one who had taken Onesimus into his care. Do you understand that? Onesimus is a slave. Paul now is taking him into his care and is now sending him back to Philemon. If Philemon doesn't handle this correctly, think about it. Think about if there are many slaves in this church, basically, basically it's saying that we don't care. And that's Paul that we're talking about. Returning Onesimus was the right thing for Paul to do. And Christ expects his people to do what's right. But if Philemon chose to handle the problem in a worldly way by punishing Onesimus, then Paul's teaching would have been rightly questioned by those most affected. And that would have caused great turmoil among the saints. The situation had to be properly addressed to protect the fellowship. That's the point. Look back at your text in verse 3. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all, it's all about grace. A grace that results in peace. A grace that finds its origination from the, the Father and from the Son. And it's the only way that we can do things in the, the right way before the Lord. So to be a church 
We must be a church that recognizes the role of grace. You see, we have been saved by grace through faith. We have no right to salvation, yet God has granted us peace with Him and with the brethren. We are now prisoners, and that's his whole point. That's why he said we are prisoners. Of, he's a prisoner of Christ. We are now prisoners and slaves of Christ, and we have a good master. Our relationship with, his, with him has freed us to love him and to love the brethren. We are no longer bound by the world's expectation that we follow their social constructs. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's his whole point. Now with that as a review, let's look at verses 4-7. through You see, we must be a church made up of authentic and or genuine believers. Second step to being a forgiving church is being a church made up of authentic or genuine believers. Now in these verses, Paul gives three ways to be authentic as believers. You should be first known for your faith in Christ. Second, known for your love for the saints. Third, known for your spiritual fruit. So to be a church made up of authentic believers, first we should be known or you should be known for your faith in Christ. Let me ask you that as a question. Are you known? Are you known for your faith in Christ? Now before we read the text, I want to quickly give you a definition of authentic and what I mean. It means to be genuine or real. In, in this sense, the word could mean uh, that we need to be genuine or true Christians. The, the word also has the idea of, of representing one's true nature or beliefs. In other words, our beliefs, what we believe, and our practices align. They're the same. We believe something and we act uh, in a certain way that shows that we believe that. As, as authentic believers, as true believers, as genuine believers, we are to act in a certain way. This means that we have to be Christians and we have to act like Christians. I'll say that again. We, it means that we have to be Christians and we have to act like Christians. So as Christians, you should be known for your faith in Christ. Look at your text in Philemon 4. Paul writes, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. The ESV renders this, this verse, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. In this case, I know that some of you have different, different translations. In this case, I think the NASB captures Paul's intent. He, he always prayed inten with intentionality. In other words, he's telling Philemon that he's intentionally praying for him. He's intentionally thinking of him and praying in a certain way. Now, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit brought Philemon to Paul's mind, but I think Paul is relaying that he intentionally prays for him. Paul practices his exhortation to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6.18. He writes that with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. You see, Paul, he, he intentionally prays for uh, the saints, the, the saints like Philemon and others. He constantly prays for the saints. And in his uh, constant prayers, he's saying, I often lift you up, Philemon. I often lift you up to the Lord. He, Paul, Paul understands Philemon's influence on the church in Colossae and beyond. And as such, he understands, Paul clearly understands, if you apply Ephesians 6, Paul clearly understands that Satan targets men and women like Philemon. 
So he prays for them. He prays for them. And in verse 5, he gives the reason and the content for his prayers. He says, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now, you may ask, if you read that, if you're, if you're astutely looking, you may ask why point one of this sermon focuses on faith when Paul's first concern seems to be love. Well, here's the answer. Philemon 5-7 are somewhat, if you will, awkward to translate from Greek to English. And in verse 5 in the Greek text, I would argue that Paul's primary, primary focus is on faith which manifests itself in love. So I'm going to hopefully prove that to you. So with that, let's slowly walk through this verse and let me show you why I say that. The New American Standard Bible is very close to the wooden translation of verse 5. The ESV also follows closely with one slight change. If you read the ESV, it says, Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now let me give you the the wooden translation of this verse. Paul woodenly writes this, Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. The problem is that this sentence seems, makes it seem like Paul is referencing love and faith toward Jesus and toward the saints. But faith toward the saints doesn't make sense. So the ESV tries to resolve that tension by saying toward all the saints, they ch- by changing that is toward all the saints to for all the saints. But the problem with that is, is that they translate the same word in the Greek so it doesn't work that way. The NET, the New English Translation, tries to resolve this tension by translating Philemon 5, because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. The NIV does much the same thing. It says, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, I would argue, that, or I would say that in some ways these translations are helpful to clear up the confusion that I bring up. But I would also argue that they fall short of capturing the power of Paul's point. Now, one last aside. The word translated faith could have the idea of faithfulness. So love and faithfulness toward Jesus and toward the saints. Now, that, if that is the case, that would solve the problem, but I don't think that's Paul's intent. Now, I pray that you'll stay with me here. Now, I would argue that we find the answer in the chiasmic structure of the verse. Now, Stay with me, because I, I, I think we'll get something out of this. I don't want to lose you. The structure of this chiasm, and I'm going to explain that in a moment, shows that faith is Paul's main concern, while love is the result of faith. Now, you can think of key, a chiasm. It's a, it's a device that a writer can use. You can think of a chiasm as a sandwich. So how do we identify the sandwich we're eating? That's a question. We identify, do we not, the sandwich that we're eating by the filling. We don't say, we don't call it a rye bread sandwich. We, don't, we, we actually would say it's a turkey sandwich on rye bread, correct? So it's the meat in the middle that, that we identify the sandwich with, right? Or the filling, if, if you will. It's the same with a chiasm. In this case, faith toward Jesus is the meat of the sandwich and love is the bread. Said another way, 
Our faith in Christ Jesus is foundational to our love for Him and for all the saints. Therefore, authentic or genuine believers are known for their faith in Christ. And this faith should influence every word we speak to one another and every action that we take. In this case, back in Philemon, Paul confirmed that Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, along with the rest of the church, were known by their faith in Christ. This then became the driving force behind all their actions. They could act in a certain way because they had an assurance of hope in Christ and the conviction of truth even of things they couldn't see. So they, instead of acting like the world, because they had faith in Christ, they could act in a completely different way than the world. Does that make sense? This leads us to directly to the second way to be a church made up of authentic believers or genuine believers. You should not only be known for your faith, but you need to be known for your love for the saints. Your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. Now, as we recognize the power of Paul's words, we see that that true love for Christ and for the saints is always the application of true faith. It's always the application of true faith. The writer of Hebrews says, states that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Nothing pleases Him more than faith in Him that causes us to love Him and causes us to love the saints. You see, our faith drives us to love others with a sacrificial love. We do this because He loves us sacrificially. And Christ's love is demonstrated, was demonstrated for us on the cross. In Galatians 5-6, Paul states that, that our faith works through our love. He says this, for, for, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means any, anything but faith working through love. In other words, we live by faith motivated and actuated by our love for God and Christ. This love manifests itself in, in a self-sacrificing love for others. Our love for Christ, let me say it this way, it manifests itself in a self-sacrificing love for others. And when we willingly sacrifice our desires and even our needs for the sake of others, we demonstrate a Christ-like love. James says, James says that, that, that a faith that doesn't have works is a dead faith. And his point is, is that if we say we have faith, yet we don't love our brothers, how can we say we have true faith? John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 10 and 11. In in John fashion. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil, devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. If you don't love one another, then you don't love God. That's John's point. And I'm going to say, just throwing this in here, that forgiveness is an indication of our love for one another. Clearly, Philemon, along with his family and the rest of the church, demonstrated their faith by their love for one another. An application, does your faith, does your faith in Jesus affect every action you take and every word you speak? 
Do you love others sacrificially? Or do you love only when you uh, think you might gain something from it? If you think, if you love when, when you might gain something of it, that's not Christ-like love. It takes faith. Faith in a living God. And hope in a living God. It takes faith in Christ to love others like He sacrificially loved us. Loves us, that is. The question is, are you willing to love the brethren with a Christ-like love? According to Paul in Romans 5.8, we're going to look at this afterward in the Lord's table, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John proclaims the same idea in 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. And we only know His love by grace through faith. Right? And I'm going to argue that we love others by grace through faith. The only way it happens. Our faith and our love for Him, our faith in Jesus and our love for Him and for all the saints authenticates us as children of God. This leads to our third way, to be a church made up of authentic believers. You should be known by your spiritual fruit. Look at verse 6. The NAS says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Now, if verse 5 was difficult to grasp, then verse 6 may be doubly difficult, maybe triply difficult. This is one of the gnarliest verses that I've seen in the New Testament. But I have noticed that many times the most fruit comes from those difficult verses. Now, if you have the handout, I gave you several translations for comparison. Now, I could as a preacher, and you may wish I had by the time this is all over, I could have gone just straight to what I think is the best translation. But my goal as your pastor is to help you learn how to do this for yourself. Now, the first difficulty here is that the words, and I pray, if you look in the New New American Standard Bible, if you had that, and I pray, the first difficulty is that those words are actually supplied in the English text. They don't exist in the Greek text. Now, this is true in all the translations I gave you. Only the New King James Version doesn't supply those words. In adding those words, the translators connect verse 6 back to verse 4, where he says, where Paul says that he makes mention of Philemon in his prayers. In verse 5, then, he gives the basis for his prayer. And in verse 6, he's giving the content of his prayer. And I believe that's the correct translation. So I would agree that those words need to be added so that we can understand what Paul is saying. The second and the main difficulty with this verse is the meaning of the word fellowship. The New American Standard translators render this word with the word fellowship. Now this word, this translation is the wooden translation of Paul's words. The ESV and the New King James Version translates this word with the idea of sharing. This conveys the idea of sharing the faith, or or said another way, evangelism. The New English translation indicates that Philemon shares the same faith with Paul and Timothy. 
the NIV points to a partnership in the faith or in ministry shared between Philemon, Paul, and Timothy. Now, if you're still with me, as you can see, translators and commentators are literally all over the map with this verse. So the question is, what is the answer? And that falls to me to try to answer that. So, the answer lies in how fellowship and faith are related. Earlier, I argued that our love for the saints is based on our faith in Christ. I would also argue that a Christian fellowship is also, Christian fellowship is also founded upon our faith. Said it, said it, said an even stronger, true Christian fellowship, true fellowship is founded upon faith in Christ. Now let's keep going in the verse. Paul prays that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. The, the Greek phrase has the idea of become effective, has the idea of becoming energized or becoming active. Then he says that the fellowship of, their, of your faith may become effective through the knowledge. Now Paul uses a word here that denotes full knowledge. Uh, the, the new Legacy Standard Bible, which I'm looking at, hopefully maybe change to over the next year or so, uh, that Bible actually uh, translates this uh, word, or this, yeah, this word, full knowledge. This word has the idea of, of the full knowledge of spiritual realities and their practical implications. You see, Paul wants Philemon to have a full knowledge of every good thing. Now, the next phrase... The next phrase, which is in you, could be translated, which is in us. Again, I'm telling you, these translations are all over the map. I don't want you to lose confidence in your translations, but there, there's a lot of different ways this could go. Now, that, that actually follows the English Standard Version, if you have that. It says, which is in us. Now, I think, the, I think, that, and I think that's the correct understanding. The last phrase has been translated by the NASB as for the sake of Christ. It literally means toward Christ. It's literally the preposition toward Christ. And I would argue that this has the idea of our lives being oriented toward Christ. It is from Him and through Him that all blessings flow. Now, normally, when I'm working through a difficult verse, I don't like using my own translation, but because this is literally all over the map, I, I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do just that. So let me put it together for you, and here's my best shot at a translation that conveys Paul's intent. He says this, I pray that the fellowship based on your faith may become effective or energized through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in us as we orient ourselves toward Christ. That's my translation for it. Let me say that again. I pray that the fellowship based on your faith may become effective or energized through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in us as we orient our ourselves toward Christ. Now you could paraphrase this verse in this way. This is Paul writing to Philemon. He says, Philemon, I am praying that the true fellowship that arises from your faith in, in Jesus may be energized by a full and deepening understanding of every good thing we possess among us as we worship together. Let me say that again. Philemon, 
I am praying that the true fellowship that arises from your faith in Jesus may be energized by a full and deepening understanding of every good thing that we possess among us as Christians as we worship Christ together. Now, this is powerful. It's powerful. It's pure gold. True Christian fellowship must be based on faith in Christ. True Christian fellowship arises from our faith in Him. You see, we love one another based on faith, and we share our lives with one another based on that same faith. Let me say it this way. There is a cost of fellowship that can only be paid when we have faith in Christ and love for Him and the brethren. Brothers and sisters, fellowship will, true fellowship, true sharing of our lives will cost you something. And that cost can only be paid when we have faith. We have faith. Because it's only out of faith that we have true love for one another. And true love leads us to truly love the brethren and love them in very practical ways. Faith and love produce spiritual fruit that comes from every good thing that God has placed in us. God has granted us, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, He's granted us uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He has given us a heart to give ourselves and our possessions to others in, in need. He has given us the ability to forgive wrongs by our faith. Now, I don't quote this man very often, maybe never, um, because I, I don't agree with much of what he teaches, but I think he got this right. Uh, N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright says, when people believe in Christ, they become identified with one another in an intimate association and incur both the benefits and responsibilities of that communion. Philemon, the letter, is fundamentally all about those responsibilities as Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, and I would argue Aphia and Archippus as well, and the entire church, are bound together in faith and are forced by circumstances to think through the radical implications of their fellowship or their koinonia, is what he says, end quote. If we truly, as a church, have what is termed koinonia, true Christian fellowship, there are radical implications to that. The radical implications. That's the point. And with these words of encouragement, Paul has laid the groundwork for Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him back as a brother in Christ. Paul may, be, may even be suggesting, suggesting that Philemon be willing to free Onesimus for greater service to Paul and his team at great cost to himself, being willing to give him up completely. Look at your text in verse 7, where verses 5 and 6 are difficult. The next few verses are actually pretty straightforward. 
Paul writes, For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. In, in the past, Philemon had demonstrated a love for Christ and the saints that had brought Paul joy and comfort. I mean, he, he had allowed, he had brought the church into his home and they met in his home and he had given his life uh, to the church to have true Christian fellowship. And Paul is saying that he, is, he has much joy and comfort uh, in, in that endeavor. The, the word translated joy has the idea of gladness while the word translated comfort has the idea of encouragement. Encouragement. It could, be, it could be comfort, is what the NAS says, but I think it has more as the idea of, of encouragement. Paul has come to have great joy and encouragement as he hears Philemon's love for Christ and the brethren. Uh, the outward sign uh, of Philemon's love is the fact that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through him. The idea of, of the word translated heart has the idea of, of bowels or inward parts. The, the, the word is used in the New, New Testament to connote the, the seat of emotions. In the words of Doug, Douglas Moo, uh, the commentator on this uh, little book of Philemon, he says, Paul used this word distressed that Philemon's love had refreshed the people of God at the deepest and most significant level of their being. He goes on to say that the word refresh has the idea of, a, of heartening, of the heartening and encouraging effect that effective ministry has on the saints. If you haven't picked up on it, true Christian faith is heart changing, life changing, life changing. It's different. We are different than the world. We have a faith that leads us to love the brethren and to, and to share fellowship with the brethren that's costly. It's costly. Beloved, this is the spiritual fruit of a ministry based on faith in Christ and a love for Him and for the saints. In today's culture, we become accustomed to a shallow faith which costs very little and loves very little. We, we live our own lives, right? We're independent from everybody else. We don't, we don't depend upon one another. We don't help one another. And that's what the church has become. But that's not what God's call is. God's call is that we live this life, that we share this life. This uh, shallow faith, by the way, produces shallow and non-existent relationships that will not have a lasting effect. I think we've seen it, have we not? Possibly some of you are sitting in these pews today because you've seen that in other churches. You know, in one sense, salvation costs us nothing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Romans 3, 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of, by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But in another sense, there's a great cost, is there not? It costs us everything. It costs us everything. I think it was Charles Spurgeon 
How quick would we build a nest in a tree marked for the woodman's axe? And yet, we live in a world that's passing away, and we treat it as if it's going to be here forever. We live in it as if it's going to be forever. No, Christ calls us to a faith that costs everything. Mark 8.34, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Then he, in the next verse, Mark 8.35, he presents a great paradox. For whoever wishes to, to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, following Christ will cost you everything, but you gain much, much more. Jim Elliot puts it this way, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which, that which he cannot lose. End quote. Beloved, being an authentic Christian will cost you everything in this world. Being a church made up of authentic believers comes at a high cost. But as Jim Elliot put it, he is no fool who gives up what he could never keep for that which If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you would turn to Him in saving faith. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open to see the goodness of Jesus who willingly suffered the Father's wrath on the cross for our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, He paid the penalty for those who believe. He paid sin's penalty for those who believe. If you're here today and you don't know Him, believe me, you will pay that penalty. You will pay that penalty for an eternity in hell. I pray if you're here today and you don't know Him, don't let another day go by. Don't let another day go by before you turn to Christ. Before you trust in Christ, trust in, in His redemptive work on the cross. I pray that you'd believe today. He stands ready to forgive. As Dwight Moody put it, a great many people want to bring their faith, their works, their good deeds to Him for salvation. Bring your sins and He will bear them away into the wilderness of forgetfulness, and you will never see them again. End quote. For those of you who know Him, I pray that you will live by faith in the living God. Paul writes in Romans 1.16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Beloved, I pray for each and every one of you that your faith will lead you to love God and others and will cause you to have sacrificial relationships founded on faith and characterized by love and forgiveness. That was Paul's exhortation to Philemon and it's mine to you today. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you in the preaching of this sermon, 
I pray that if you have any questions, uh, something that you're convicted with, something that you have thought through and you want to have, you have questions, please contact one of uh, me or, or they or, or a mature Christian who can help you. Let me pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning as we think about this sermon. We think about the man Philemon, who Paul was confident that he was a man who would live by faith. He was a man whose love was founded upon his faith in the Lord. He was a man who understood fellowship and understood the implications of that true faith and true love. He understood how costly it can be, yet he is no fool who would lose what he can't ever keep for that which he could never lose. Father, I pray this morning for those here that we would understand that we have been saved by grace through faith, that we can never lose that which we've been given. Father, I pray that, that would, those, the implication of that in our lives would be that we would live, that we would be energized to live a life based on that faith, a life that is pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen.